Welcome to Beholder Beauty, Episode 2, Beauty from Ashes, with my guest, Kimberly Finney. Kimberly is a professor of English, counselor, and a writer, and she is founder of the literary community, The Way Back to Ourselves. Kimberly's story is a Beauty from Ashes story, where we firsthand watch God as He transforms her life. Welcome, Kimberly, and I love all that you're doing. I met you at the beginning of the summer, and I didn't know I was looking for a poetry community, and <laughs> I bet I was. The moment I showed up on your page, you were so welcoming. You were just like, come on in to have a Yes, that to me is like the cornerstone of care that we want to emanate at the way back to ourselves, that it's not just about putting out great work. I mean, that's important, but we want to be, it's soul care too. I want to know the people who are in our community and I want to look at them and find them and see them and celebrate what they're doing and support them as well for it to be like a symbiotic relationship. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's about that compassionate care. Well, for my listeners, I would like to introduce you to them. She is an English professor, yes. counselor, a mother, a wife, a writer, a poet, an essayist, an article writer, soul seeker, a beauty seeker, and you started The Way Back to Ourselves, which is a blog, a literary journal, and now a podcast. Yes. And you do it all with such grace and love. I would like you to tell us about yourself and about your story. Absolutely. Thank you for your kindness. I would probably say the centerpiece of it is suffering. And the answer is beauty from ashes. If I didn't go through immense suffering, let's be very honest, I would still be teaching in room 925 because I'm a bloom where you're planted kind of girl. That's how my mom raised me. If my community and my reach is small, if it's good and holy and purposeful, I am happy. And I was happy in room 925. I was intentionally making my life very small and and focused. I quit all social media for about six years. I withdrew from a lot of things. I put a lot of things on hold, namely my career and my doctoral studies and a lot of other things because we had our miracle daughter. I struggled with years of infertility and serious health problems. And it was because of stage four aggressive stage four endometriosis, which I still suffer from today. And it's something that I didn't want to come to terms with. It's such an intimate disease. And for those of you who are listening, it does primarily start with the reproductive organs in a woman, but it's so much more than that. It behaves like a cancer without cancer cells. And it moves throughout your body, attaches to multiple organs. When you're stage four, it's that dire. And that's where I live to try to put a positive spin on it. The suffering led to extreme trials that almost killed me, but did not because I decided, and really this has to do with the Lord and and my family and my faith, that we decided that we would not be defeated. I was in my wheelchair. And for those of you who are listening, some of you know my story, some of you don't, but I've had multiple surgeries and one of them I got sepsis. And then I was battling this infection 
and multiple hospitalizations on top of still having aggressive stage four endometriosis. And together they made me bedridden. They crippled me. I was too ill to be operated on while the disease spread. It became critical. In that, you do want to die. I mean, your life becomes the only purpose, you know, that I could see was waking up and suffering. And I was a mom to a very young child at the time because it's been about a four-year fight and she's only six. And yes, even retelling this to you makes me feel it's an otherworldly feeling to talk about. So long story, not as long, (laughs) is that I did on my third surgery, I was able to be made stable. But over the past two years, I've really declined again because the disease is not curable. You just keep having lots of surgeries and therapies and you can make it your life more livable. But I am out of a wheelchair. I fought and learned how to walk again, PT, prayers. And in that journey, just over a year ago, I got COVID when I was a little more stable. We were out of the dark period. And I said to my husband, you know, that thing that I've been dreaming about, that this idea of the way back to ourselves, I'm going to. I'm going to make the website and it's in the middle of me having COVID. <laughs> He's like, this woman has lost her mind, but I love her. <laughs> and I support her. And he, yeah, he is really a very supportive husband. But He's worried about me because it's my MO to overextend, especially in the middle of health issues. And so I started it and I was happy to just see it be a, a nice little blog and Maybe 50 readers. (laughs) And that would be fine to put something good out there and to connect with a few like-minded people and to minister to people. And this is where the God story comes in because in my own healing, in my own humanness and vulnerability and being willing to share that. And I had the attitude of, what I mean, I almost died. What's going to happen? Like, what can happen to me now? People can tell me, no, they don't like it. I can get rejected. And people don't want that. But I am not risk adverse anymore because I just feel so called. And when you have a near-death experience, everything gets, yeah, you just, everything gets reordered and you just get so much clarity that I got at 37 instead of maybe 67 or 87. I saw things that we normally don't see until end of life if we're blessed. And so every day I bring my crumbs, as I've said, and I offer them up to the people that are here and to the Lord. And he has multiplied. Faith and obedience. When we feel like our offering is meager or it's crumbs, how do we show up? I think that when I think about the soul care of it and that if, and this is one of those more Christian cliches about how there was a man walking on the ocean, on the ocean shore after a storm and all these starfish wash up, right? And he's one by one throwing them into the ocean and there's thousands of them. And another man comes up and says, why do you do this? This is going to make no meaning. There's thousands of them. There's one of you. And he picks up a starfish and throws it into the ocean and says it mattered to him. I think that mentality of as cliche as it is, I think it's a cliche for a reason that if you just minister to the one, if you just impact the one, then that is just so, like you were saying, you can see what God does. And that is so redeeming and it feels so good, especially if you felt rejected or not seen in your life. I love being able to see people 
because not only is that bringing healing with them through the Lord, but it brings healing into my own life too. It's the idea of that wounded healer. And I just feel like that's so meaningful that sometimes I tell myself, get over yourself. Just show up. I posted that the other day too about the podcast where it's like, but I don't know, just show up. But I'm sick, just show up. And that's pretty much what I've been telling myself because even on the most rotten days, if I feel like I don't have much to offer up, the power of just showing up and admitting that still touches somebody. It does. You're absolutely right. There's one person that needed to hear that, but it's, it's the ripple effect because that one person goes on to the next person to the next person. And that's how God works. Episode one of your podcast, you felt like God was talking to your heart. And then your husband and taking up to the Blue Ridge Mountains mm -hmm. and you kept seeing a path. And yes. then when you said that, you this gives me chills now. There it's very be, emotional. There must be a way. Yes. Find a way back. And that's mm -hmm. so powerful. And that's where the name came from. So if you want to talk about that some. For me, it's a story of critical illness. And mental illness. I, I've struggled with depression and anxiety and postpartum and things like that. It could be coming to terms with things that you've done that you regret. I mean, there's a point in time where I feel like all of us can wake up and say, how did I get here? And how do I get back? And for me... The soul wrecking thing is it was an overnight illness that I was getting sicker and sicker, but then it went from, okay, I can control this. I can hide it. I can medicate to critical mass to the point where I was hospitalized, bedridden. And there was a stretch of time where I was not much more than just, you know, a sack of bones. <laughs> That's how it felt. And I would lay in bed at night because I couldn't sleep and I was becoming delirious and I kept on seeing this road, this pathway. My parents moved away to the Blue Ridge Mountain area when I was 18. I'm in Florida. And I've been here since I was five. We are from the outer Boston area and our family were New Englanders. That's how I'm connected and rooted there is that was my second family home. And I would go to them whenever I could. My parents had roots there until about seven years ago. The end game is to move there when the Lord wills that. The past four or five years have been survival mode, but that would be the plan. For me, church and being a part of a body and being in the Bible and all of that, all sacred, all important things. But my true church where I feel like the Lord comes up to meet me and I can see his beauty and I find a tangible place where my soul rests and knows it's standing on the Blue Ridge Parkway, staring at those Blue Ridge Mountains. And I was able to go back during my illness when I was more stable. We've been able to get back and it's very limited. It doesn't look the way it used to, but we sat out there and I looked over those mountains and that was right before the way back to ourselves came to be. And I just breathed deep and I got a knowing that there is a way back and it won't always look the same. You don't want to crawl back into exactly what was it's a forward path that reaches back in and so that vision that stirring what god was doing in it i hardly feel that i can take credit because it was such a deeply moving stirring image that i could not shake 
in the podcast, you said that this dream that he gave you was a gift that you needed at that time. Absolutely. And I think he does that. He knows when, when we need the gift of a dream to give us that hope. I've said it so many times since whenever anybody messages me or DMs or reaches out to invite me on something and sometimes they might say, oh, you're writing or what you're doing or who you are, it's such a gift. And I always want to turn it back and say, no, God bless you. And you are here and you are even reading what I'm writing and you're partaking and you are the gift. I definitely feel like a pauper and I'm standing amongst the gift. And my job is to just keep showing up and curating a space to offer that soul care and love and that opportunity for people to come together and not make it about me, but make it about this entity. When it's community, it's like this celebration of people. You're part of the people and it feels really good, fun and exciting. But when it's just you, it feels right. Yeah, it doesn't I love the divine we so much more than the, <laughs> exactly. the self-serving I. I'm reading David Brooks' The Second Mountain. I'm not very far into it. Okay. But what you were just talking about, there are two mountains in our lives. Not everybody gets to their second mountain. The first mountain is egotistical. It's the I. It's driven. And it's when we're like finding what's my job going to be? Who am I going to marry? My white picket fence and all of these things we get tied up. And it's not that those things are wrong, but it is about that self-driven trajectory. Then something catastrophic happens that dashes us off that first mountain into a valley. And that can be suffering and all the things that we've talked about. And he said, people can choose to stay in the valley and become shut-ins and become bitter and not to grow or rebound from what's happened or they can choose the second mountain. And the second mountain, isn't that beautiful, is this is a different mountain entirely. And it's about altruism. It's about community. It's about serving something that's divine, something larger than ourselves. And man, that was resonating with me because I'm thinking I was on my first mountain until 37. And I and again, I want to emphasize, if you're on your first mountain, you're not a bad person. If you never suffered, maybe some of us have, you're not a bad person. But suffering and being dashed off your first mountain is going to carry a layer of learning that you can't have otherwise. What's wild to me is I went through this, I'm still in it, and I'm starting to climb the second mountain. And I find that so perfect for the way back to ourselves because the imagery is the mountains. Stuff I'd only tell God. Oh. It's Jennifer Dukes Lee. Thin places are physical locations where the veil between heaven and earth seems very thin and porous. Mm. Here you sense that you're in the middle of a sacred transcendent place. You can breathe again. God is very near. These are my thin places. Then you write them down. I wrote Smoky Mountains on the beach on a sailboat in the Bahamas in St. Stephen's Cathedral in Budapest. That sort of relates somehow to me, your second mountain. Yeah, I can see how you saw that because... The second mountain can be a thin space because it is something more than ourselves. Like we've been knocked around. We decided to summit out of the abyss, which takes a lot of fortitude. And like the phoenix, you're reborn. 
it's interesting too, because here I am 40 and in a lot of ways I'm in an infancy of a lot of things. And it definitely feels like a rebirth. I had to walk away from my job and everything that was. I had to learn to walk again. I have had to deal with the fact that I will never be able to have another baby. So what else can I mother and birth? What? Right. And of course, it makes you double down on the mother that you are to your only child that you have. And so I'm also reborn into motherhood in a lot of ways to say, how can I be radically present? Mm. This is my one and only rodeo as of now. An adoption is a possibility, but also too, you can't do that when you're critically ill. They need healthy parents. And so we're just trusting the Lord through what could be the future. I don't usually think of people in terms of Bible verses, but I do. (laughs) Well, thank you. That is a very kind thing to say. Isaiah 63 turns our ashes into beauty. Through your story, God is showing us how he does that. And I haven't suffered physically the way you have, but that doesn't mean that I possibly won't in the future. So your story helps me see how, how to live it. I would say that one, and it doesn't sound nice, but it is true that it's not when if suffering will happen it's when it happens for us because we right so one thing i would say is just to start to be prepared for that in your spirit if i could go back i would want to help the younger me the mid-30s me before everything got very catastrophic and you're not in the control that you think you are you can't outrun suffering you can't trick it it's going to happen to all of us in one way or another. So I think that it's important in your faith and in your virtues and your character to work on that aspect. And then I would say, this is a little phrase that I've had since, is mission over misery. That when you give God your misery, your suffering, in turn, he does have the capacity to heal us. But because we're in a fallen world and we're broken creatures and he gave us the gift of free will and he gave us the gift of life and biology, those things do backfire Mm -hmm. depending on the choices we make and our bodies do break down. It's a gift that a package deal suffering comes with it, right? So mission over misery is something that I tell myself because it's like suffering happens to all of us. I'm not an exception to the rule. There's nothing special or unique about me other than the fact that, yeah, not everybody has this exact story, but God is in the pieces. And if I trust him with my misery and my suffering, he can give me a mission. And now the counselor in me is going to come in and and talk about post-traumatic growth, right? And it is true now. We have research, neurobiology, our nervous system, that when we go through something catastrophic, yes, there are going to be negative ramifications but there is such thing as post-traumatic growth and i think that this is a spiritual principle and you get a value added because we now know that faithful people who pray people who have a spiritual discipline get it and i think that's because it is the promise in the bible the beauty from ashes and that when god says i will deliver my people And so I feel like if we're willing to give him our suffering, it doesn't bypass it. 
Trust me, if I had an answer for you today on how to bypass suffering, Lord knows I'd be doing it every day and I would be selling it and I'd be getting rich. (laughs) I'm just teasing, but we can't bypass it, right? So the question is, how are we going to live in it? For me, the day that I decided to allow this to become my mission field and to get over myself and to show up in pain and to show up authentically, even to the point of I will post probably more than these makeup photos on Instagram. I am committed. If I'm going to be in this space, I'm going to be real. I'm never going to let this be anything other than a mission field. I will post pictures of me looking completely sick in bed mm-hmm. and then with a prayer or a ministry to someone. What's so interesting is we have all of this bright and shiny stuff on Instagram and all these dancing TikTokers and everybody who is looking perfect and beautiful and precious. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm sure there's space for that. I mean, obviously people follow it, but I think what's so resonating for people, and at least what I've noticed is when we do show up in these spaces and say, look, friends, this is what, I'm not doing anything interesting today. I am laying in my bed and suffering, but even God is here with me. Mm-hmm. And here's a prayer for you. Those are the days where I'm the most feeble. And if I'm daring enough to share it, it really ministers to people. Because yeah. they're feeling just like me. Sometimes, maybe not even physical, but it's um, emotional or mental. Absolutely. Or, or spiritual. Absolutely. Um, and to see that um, honesty and that they're not alone. Having your honesty in your space helps me be more honest. Because I struggle with hiding behind maybe words or something. Rather than just saying what I really I'm feeling. Yes. And it becomes contagious because I feel like you're giving people permission. Someone needs to be a permission giver. I don't mind doing that. Like I said, I was in a wheelchair. I'll never forget that. It will dash every bit of your pride. And I will carry that feeling with me for the rest of my life. Kate Bowler said ever since her critical, she feels like she lives life inside out. She doesn't know if she would want it any other way. And oh, I heard her say that to Kara Tippett on being the other day. It just made me want to cry and covered me in goosebumps because I'm thinking this woman is speaking my language. That's exactly what it feels like when we have gone through the ringer like that. And I never want to forget. I don't want to unsee. I don't want to forget. I don't want to become so distant from that because I think that there's something so beautiful there in that space. So I'm happy to give permission. And just show up for other people and say, I see you in that vulnerable space. When you are in that vulnerable space, you're connected to God at that point. That beauty of just he's carrying you. And what's so wild is if you let him carry you, you're more equipped to carry others because he's carrying you. Right? Right? So it's like we're all tucked inside of one another. I think that's the beauty of community. I do have to say I have a spiritual mentor. When I was in postpartum, I had really bad postpartum depression. It was really bad. And now we know part of it was the endometriosis because it attacks your nervous system and it just gets everything off balance, hormonal imbalance, inflammation, and then having my daughter. And he was actually my long-term substitute, but he happened to be a pastor and a counselor too. So God knew exactly what I needed. We would talk on the phone every couple of days about lesson plans and everything. And we became great friends over the time that I was out. I was out half a year. I was just crying my eyes out to him one day. And at this time, I was a perfectionist. I was a control freak. I was 
at home alone with a new baby. I was terrified because I had miscarried so many times and you get brainwashed almost to think something horrible is going to happen. I was afraid to like let her sleep. It's hard to be a new mom. And he told me, you just need to be weak in Jesus. You don't need to be strong. You don't need to be in control. You don't need to have answers. You don't even have to know what the rest of today is going to look like. You know, when you hold that baby, be weak in Jesus. When you're struggling, be weak in Jesus. That has stayed with me for all these six years since. That That's another way that we can show up is broken vessels, weak vessels. But when we have that armor and when we have that faith and we're walking with the Lord, he's going to enable us to do far beyond what we can expect to do. There was some kind of release that I had because I never really thought of it like that. I thought I had to be strong. I thought I had to be in control. I thought I had to be brave. And he gave me the permission to say no. I would get up and I would pray when I was taking my shower in the morning, getting ready to go teach and be the English department head. And so you're in charge of a lot of people are under your care, not only your students, but the students in the department and your colleagues. And and I would just start telling myself, just be weak in Jesus, Kimberly. Get out of his way and just show up and see what happens. I would pray as Lord, let me get out of my own way, get out of your way. You know, yeah, get out, More get of you, up. less of me. <laughs> yeah. What you said about the strength. This last couple of days, I started feeling overwhelmed. And Jesus said, I never asked you to do this alone. I'm your strength. You're weak. I'm strong. Exactly. You can't do this on your own. You're, you're not capable, but I am. And I'm going to help you. I'm going to do it with you. I love it when people tell me stories like that. And I'm always saying, that's the same God. It's the okay. same God. It is. It, it completely. And he has his ways and he is, he's wanting to have those breakthroughs with all of us. I love you said you're a red letter girl. Yeah, I'm a red letter girl. And you were talking about the woman at the, well, the Samaritan woman, the outcast. Mm -hmm. I've been wrestling with this past summer is how do I love the people that God puts in my life when they're different from me? When How do I not be judgmental? Like if they're a Christian, I'm judging them. If they're not a Christian, I'm judging them. How do I love them? Like Jesus did, because it's so easy to become divisive. And especially in this day and age, it's in the air we breathe, mm -hmm. our culture, the gotcha moments, mm -hmm. that buzzword cancel cancel culture. And I would say that I and I my husband and I talk about it so much. He's like, you are so unbelievably comfortable with people that are so different from you. And I can't really take credit for that because that was I spent 10 years in a tough inner city public school. And my students taught me that. And they, that is what they gave to me because I would stand in front of 150 kids a day over almost 10 years. So you can do the math. That's a lot of kids. Yeah. And they were from all walks of life, right? I mean, I fell in love with my Muslim kids, my atheist kids, mm -hmm. my Jewish children who were struggling with their identity, children who were struggling with arrogance and pride. And I worked with, I have worked with between 14 to 18 year olds for almost 20 years. I spent more time with teenagers than I probably have my own peers. I would tell my kids, and it's in the books I like to teach, it's hard to hate someone up close. And if we're willing to get really close and make that eye contact and, and see the pain in that person sitting across, 
the needs of humanity. You, for me at least, I couldn't help but to just feel an abundance of love and care. My kid would explode on me, getting angry, cussing me out, or saying, you just don't understand. When I was a very young teacher, because I started teaching at 21, 22, that was very offensive to me. Mm. About 10, 11, 12 years in of doing this work day in and day out, I know this is going to sound crazy. And my kids, I took it as a compliment because they knew I was a safe place. They knew I wasn't going to kick them out. They knew I wasn't going to yell back. They knew I wasn't going to shame them. Their nervous system and their hearts knew that I can lose it and she'll sit in it with me. And there's something so powerful that happens there. And I think that's where the woman at the well comes in because I'm a bleeding heart. And I told my husband, I said, I want the way back to ourselves to be unbelievably loving and welcoming to people who are, like I said in that podcast, walking in step with the Lord, struggling in their faith, curious about this faith. Because if Christ can create that woman at the well experience and we want to be Christians, we want to be little Christs, let's follow his lead. He's seeking out people who are broken, afraid, confused, and he's leaning in. That's the first thing that he shows is that he's leaning in. He calls her by name and it's like very direct. You can insert whatever sin or confusion or belief system, you can insert whatever you want. For her, the woman at the well, it was the affairs, it was the infidelity, the sexual sin. It can be a variety of those things or it can be anything else that any of us struggle with. Like we're all the woman at the well mm -hmm. and we wanna be pursued. And I think that when you receive people with that love, and it doesn't mean that you have to agree with them, it doesn't mean that you're endorsing their struggles. But it's saying, I meet you here in this space. I see you. I do think that you are worth saving. I do think that you're worth love. And I just could go on. But no, it came love, from being. I love it completely. It, yeah. And it totally came from working with inner city, diverse populations for a decade. Because it will humble you in any arrogance or Christian arrogance that you might have, where you think you've got everything figured out. Oh my gosh, hard knocks. They will let you know. And it definitely humbled me. It shaped me and it gave me wisdom beyond my years that even now I have to, it's just become a part of me, even though I'm not with my inner city kids anymore. I haven't been for about 10 years, but it's a part of me. I see people, I just want to lean in. I do believe that God does put people in our life to love. And sometimes Absolutely. they may be some of the most unlovable people. Yes. It's like in the Bible, the whole love your enemies, because it's like, what is it to you if you love who loves you? Right? And I'm paraphrasing it, but it does say that. And it's good for you. I mean, I'm glad that you're loving people that love you. But yeah. what I'm calling you to is to love your enemies of your, as yourself. I think today we can insert enemy with other or outsider or any other word any other word that makes us maybe feel uncomfortable. And so that's another thing that loving your enemy as yourself is not easy, right? There has to be a great spiritual depth and growth and humbleness to step into that space. I think it's just realizing that it exists and all of us possibly to be judgmental or not be not accepting or to be non-Jesus-like. And then here we are trying to be here, come to Jesus, but we're not showing you who he is. Exactly. 
Exactly. <laughs> but if they saw who he really was, like the woman at the well. They would be jumping and shouting and elated and unbelievable relief. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And somebody said it, be careful, because you might be the only Bible somebody ever reads. It's true. Sometimes I worried whether, oh, I should post this. What if one of my, one of my non-Christian friends, and I thought, well, but wait a second, I'm the only one who's ever going to hear Jesus from. They're the one I'm posting it for. Exactly. Probably. Then that person will usually, the one I'm really worried about will press like, and I'll be like, there you go. <laughs> exactly. And I, I'm not surprised at all to hear you say that because going back to my students, the kids who could be the most angry at me or because I had boundaries and I called them to something beyond themselves. And years later or months later, they would come back and say, oh my goodness, thank you. I needed that. And when you live long enough and you get that on repeat, you're like, okay, Lord, this is exactly where you have me. I need to do the work. It's not about me. I'm going to plant the seeds. I'm not going to have an expectant attitude that I'm going to see anything bloom. I'm just going to trust you for it. And so plant those seeds. I love that. Social media is a mission field now. It really is. That's where the people are. My students probably still have a good chuckle because Miss Finney was so anti-social media. I quit everything and I swear I was never going to come back and yet here I am. But I think that the Lord could trust me with it because it, it was long ago died uh, in my life as an idol. But it is a mission field. And so for me, it was like, this is, I'm sick. I can't leave my house and I'll be darned if I let this disease silence me. So, right. What do I have? I got my phone and I have my computer and I can write and I can communicate. That's what the Lord has given me. And so back to social media, I went because I said, that's where my kids are. All my ex-students, there's over 2000 of them. A ton of them are out there and I still want to be in contact. I actually was praying because as the season goes on, the way back to ourselves is getting bigger. And I'm like, okay, Lord, there's going to be, there has to be some restructuring. I have to ask for help. I have to start creating boundaries because one of my things is the whole workaholism. Not that it's, I'm very aware. It's nothing that's out of control in the past year since I've had my daughter, but it's that thing, that temptation that I always have to be aware of is that I have all these big dreams and big visions and I'm so passionate about the platform that I can just become this little worker bee and wanting to put out the content and answer every single message from everybody and be a good steward. But I also need to make sure that I'm, I have to have space for rest and quiet time and mothering and being a wife and, and making sure I'm taking care of my body. Yeah. Creating that balance and those boundaries. Yes. Prioritizing and being really intentional. Yeah. About it. Let's go to your writing. Yes. Yeah. So you write, as we talked before, essays and articles and poetry. You wrote a manuscript. Of Wings and Dirt. Of the poems that you said, I really loved them all, but the one that one that really just got me was the Do Angels Like Jazz. Oh, yes. Angels Like Jazz. I That's one of my all-time favorites. Let me read it and then tell me what inspired you to write it. It was in the early spring and my health had really plummeted in March. And I was back to being kind of bed bound, couch bound. 
homebound because the biggest problem for me right now is that it's covering all my intestines and organs. And I think it's on my appendix now. And so there's a real problem when I walk. I was having a hard time and I said, I'm going to try to revel in the beauty of what is. I curled up on the couch and I picked up some books of poetry. I think I had some Mary Oliver with me, Billy Collins and a few others. I flipped through the pages and I came across a Billy Collins poem about angels. I read it and it really stirred me and it was really beautiful. So I wrote this poem as a letter back to him, but also it infused some of my own biography. That's what really made it personal. I'm really proud of this poem because I submitted it to Fathom Magazine and it came out in the spring and it was the cover. I didn't know that was going to happen. I went on and I clicked over and I saw it and I go, what? It was a real shock. I felt so blessed that they picked it and then to know that they led with it. So this is called Angels Like Jazz. This is after Billy Collins' poem, Questions About Angels. Sometimes I wonder about angels too. I wonder like you if they have pulled up a chair, invisible and unannounced, and I am entertaining them with my coffee clouds and the late morning sun, unaware as it spills light through the slits in the east window. Or if they open their delicate hands to catch my tears as they slough off my jaw when nobody sees or believes in my pain. And if they like my poems at all, or not, I wonder about that too. Or if I am their cup of tea, and might they like me best? Or do they even like tea at all? Like the sweet vanilla rubos on my nightstand I never finish? And I wonder like you what they might feel, or if their wings are heavy, and if they read my mail when it comes. And when I bend to tend my garden, I wonder if two little ones are with me to witness my tenderness and soft wishes for the lost generations that fell out of me too soon. And I hope angels like jazz like I do, particularly Billie Holiday, and most definitely Blue Moon. So I hope they don't ever feel alone or lonely like I do, which are two different things. They must not, I think, because I suspect they have been the ones to give comfort with their soft breezes across my arm, I mistook for the wind. And that lovely presence in the shadows cast down from the sweet bay magnolia last May, I mistook for you. I suspect those were angels too, dancing among us like old lovers at the piano bar long after the music stops. The theme of the book and it's of wings and dirt because it's recognizing that we are humans living in flesh and blood and in the dirt. We're of the dirt. We will come, we will pass away ashes to ashes, but we're also of wings. We're spiritual, we're ethereal, we're souls. So it's something where I refuse to have only a foot in one place or the other. We are Christian souls, but we also suffer and we're of this world. With a lot of my poetry, I'm trying to do both, which is very niche because like I've said before, and you've probably hear, heard me say this, there's like the footprints in the sand and the chicken soup for the soul. Listen, there's a time and a place for all of that. I was a huge fan of all of it. I still enjoy it. 
but it's cleaned up. It's Christianese, it's GPG, and it definitely serves a purpose. But for me, it can fall flat sometimes for people who are really suffering, searching, looking. I think that this poetry or when we can stand in both spaces, I think it really matters. I think it matters to people who are trying to make sense of this world and living in our spiritual selves and also being bound in our bodies. What's going on right now is poets, you and Nicholas and others, is that the spiritual faith, contemporary, is very honest and real, almost like picture of real life, but also with everything that's not so pretty, but then also with stuff that's just glorious and that both live in the same space and if we can live that way i think maybe that's how because that's what jesus did he came down exactly and then maybe and how we stay christ-like i think that's the deepest part of all because he didn't come down only as god No. No, no he didn't manifest god didn't split the veil and say i'm gonna send a part of myself that's all spiritual It was in the form of a son who was born from a woman who had to go through growing pains and puberty and hurt and ostracization and yet never sinned. Even Christ still has his scars today. And that is the idea of wings and dirt. Actually, I'm so I'm like so glad you brought it up that way, because that is the embodiment. Christ embodies both. He was man and he was God. Yeah, that's and why we separate them sometimes especially in this culture where the sacred is so separated out from the secular or the profane or the mundane. And it it really makes us disembodied creatures. Mm. And I I love to see the two come, come back together. You also have your poetry hour, which yeah. I attended, and I'm going to attend the October one too. Yay! It was incredible. I would like to tell my listeners about that in case somebody's interested in attending one. How'd you go up with the idea? What's the the mission behind it? What's the future for it? Oh, man, so good. Okay, so where did it come from? It would be my teaching background and now my English professoring and that I am determined that I'm not going to let this disease and the turn of events stop me from doing what I know God made me to be. And there's no doubt in my mind that he made me to serve others through teaching and support and counseling. And so when I early on thought about the way back to ourselves, it was just going to be this blog, but then you start to get this bucket list and these visions. And I was like, maybe down the road, Lord, if you let it, it could be a podcast to minister to people. It could be Maybe we could offer classes or we could do things because this is something that I've done for 20 years. I I have the skill set, this education. I have my master's in English and teaching, and I just don't want to stop. So that's how it started. I was sitting, praying, and I was very, I was in agony over not teaching because I come alive and it is a spiritual experience for me. There's nothing like being in a classroom and loving on people and teaching them about the beauty of life through literature and writing. I said to my husband, even if I'm sick, I can take pain meds. We can do it at night. I can sit and it's an hour 
and maybe some people would want to come. And I had very humble expectations. I'm thinking if just 10 people want to come, that was my goal. And then we'll see if this is something that would be repeatable, but just to do it once, it would, gosh, that would feel good. So I started to put things together because I have a background in journalism and graphic design. I published and ran a state-winning yearbook for about nine years. And I used to have a professional photography business, so I have the skill set to do all the things. Right. And why not repurpose them? And that's what I did. And I was so blown away. I think the first time we had like 15, 16 people, and it ended up falling right around our anniversary weekend. We happened to be in northern Georgia right off the Blue Ridge. That was a circle moment. That was a God thing. He was like, hey, baby girl, I got you. And I'm the full circle moment. You're going to be teaching on Zoom to faithful creatives right there in the Blue Ridge Mountain where it all started, which was really mind boggling because it was never planned that way. We got such reception from that. People were begging, where, where, when's there going to be more? <laughs> so we did an encore in July and there was about 20 people. And we try to keep it small too. Once I hit around 2025, 20, I try to invite people to a following one because I want the intimacy and it just has snowballed and we had 25 people and then I capped it then I invited people just come next time it's just been amazing the purpose of it is number one is that community care and of course people are coming to learn content and that is important but I believe what is most important is giving connection community inspiration, because that is a seed that you plant that just lasts. The on-ramp is, hey, come learn poetry or learn about writing craft or building a platform or using social media for ministry or whatever topic that we're covering. But that's really, for me, it's like the on-ramp to getting people together to love on them, support them. The what? Community. Yes, exactly. We always say that too. I said the greatest gift, and we now do get in the chat, Share your website, share your Instagram. You're going to find friends on that chat that we want you to make friends and in, inroads in, in and communities that are part of us, but more of a tributary mm. where this is the stream and then the tributary. Nothing makes me more happy than if I get on Instagram or if I see people who met through the poetry hour and then they're cultivating friendships and connections and they're guest blogging on each other's stuff or uh, that makes, that's the teacher in me. I'm just like, yes, they met at the poetry hour. And now they're friends and they're encouraging each other and blessing each other. It doesn't get better than that. I just heard from Tanner Olson of Written to Speak, and I think he's going to come and be with us in the new year for one. And so I have high hopes. The other thing is I want to start when I get healthier is having a creativity hour or community hour, which is not scripted or anything like that. We're going to be on Zoom on Friday night at eight or something and just come and hang out and meet people and we'll talk. Mm -hmm. Just something really unscripted. I love that you're doing that. It's a great community of people. I'm happy that I found you. We are very blessed. Thank you. <laughs> uh, question, how do you see life as God's beautiful daughter? Especially when maybe things get hard. You say, I'm not doing well tonight. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm barely hanging on. I would say that a big shift from before to now is thinking you have to hustle and perform and check the boxes and to be caught up in certain disciplines to feel that you are enough. 
as God's beautiful daughter or enough for somebody else or that you have worth or value because you know how to hustle or you know how to perform. But I think that the big thing is when that was all stripped away from me, then what are you left with, right? And I felt unbelievably invisible, worthless, and dead. And that's the truth. And I know I had a character flaw. I had a blind spot that I've written about. So God had to rebuild me from the bottom up. And now what that means is that I'm held. And whatever the day looks like, if it is a day where I'm in bed until one or two o'clock in the afternoon, which happens more often than I'd like to admit right now. And the most that I could do was work on my computer, take care of my daughter to the best of my ability, love my husband and praise the Lord, then that's going to be enough. That's enough. I am enough because, and that's something I've said before, with a period. I think that we, especially women, and listen, men have their own things. I've definitely, something that I want to do is highlight the men's mental health crisis. We, they are not untouched by the pressures of this world. But I can definitely only speak to my own lived experiences that as a woman, we definitely have it tough as far as beauty standards, the expectations about sexuality and pressures and fertility and being able to have children and There's just a lot of complexities about the divine feminine and femininity that losing my ability to have more children, losing my ability to walk, losing my youth and health and things like that. It's easy to hear the voices that you shouldn't be hearing, (laughs) that you're not worthy. So to learn that you're God's beautiful daughter because, period, and that you are held because, period. Because you know what? We definitely feel like it's I'm beautiful and I'm worthy. Like I'm worthy because I'm beautiful. I'm worthy because I'm young or I'm worthy because I perform or I do something better than other people or I make a lot of money or I have 50,000 followers on Instagram. None of that matters. It's all just because. He made you. He sees you. Imago Dei. So powerful because all of that other stuff can be taken away like that. And that's exactly where I found myself. God had to do work within me and I had to have a reckoning with myself. And then that's back to the beauty for ashes right there. Definitely one of my favorite phrases in the Bible these days is to keep reminding myself that he will give you the beauty from ashes. Period. (laughs) Period. Yes, I love that. Period. God's handed you beauty to give to the world through your writing and through your platform and through your love and your serving and um, through your family, your daughter. And do you ever feel insecure about the mission? And what do you do about that? Yeah, I think that, well, one is that prominent feature that I think we all struggle with. It's universal with humankind, but as artists and you know, sensitive souls that imposter syndrome loves to kick up and rear its ugly head. But I think I'm doing mostly better with that. I've had days where it absolutely kicks me in my teeth, but I don't live there anymore. But what I'm learning is if I make it about me, right? It's that first mountain. It is easy to become riddled in anxiety, self-doubt, perfectionism, all the things. But if I stay on that second mountain and if I make it about the mission and if I make it about others, 
I say, I only care what God thinks about what I'm doing. And and not that I don't care about others. Of course I do. But I, I have to put God first, right? I have to. And I have to put my marriage and my daughter. And am I being a living manifestation in their lives of love and faith and servanthood and care and whatever it is that they need from me? If I have that in order, then I'm good. I'm good to go. And I have gotten a very thick skin since getting ill because people who I loved and trusted the most, I had been hurt in very intimate ways of people not believing I was sick or all kinds of things. And it's not even worth talking about because I don't believe in living there either. But again, beauty from ashes, it thickens you. It thickens your skin. You have to die to self. You have to die to the approval and the appraisals of others if you're going to survive. And the Lord was very frank with me about that, that you need to basically shut your mouth, trust me, and everything's going to be okay. You don't need to fight the battle to set the record straight, right? Just follow me, live out loud, serve others, and who cares if the record is set straight because you're my child? Of course, we do know in this human world that if we do keep showing up in, in integrity and faith, people will start to see who you really are. Yes. And the people who don't, I wish them light and love. Yes. Learning to have compassion. Yes. <clears throat> they don't have the, Jesus says, they don't have the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the heart. And at different levels and times in our lives, we might not have the capacity to be the best version of ourselves, too. Right. It's extending that grace and love, even when we don't want to in our flesh. And understanding as much as this hurts me on a personal level, maybe the abandonment and, or the naysaying, or it was actually never really about me. I just ended up being on the receiving end mm -hmm. of their own personal capacities and their own internal narratives. And that has been a healing thing too, getting my doctorate in community care and counseling, because it's helping me do the deep work in myself. And that allows me to extend that deep work and love and compassion into others. So you are going to school right now, too. I am. You're doing a lot. <laughs> well, I, I joke with my husband. My nerdy superhuman <laughs> power is that I read and I write. Yeah. Right. So I'm very blessed that God gave me that because... Don't get me wrong, a doctorate is extremely difficult and there are days I cry and that I say I can't do it because I have 20 pages of research due by Sunday night. But he's given me those skills and that propensity to take small bites and then make a big thing happen. Um, right. And again, though, it'd be mission over misery. Like in my flesh, a lot of times you don't want to read 500 pages in a week or study things that can be really heavy. But I think about the mission over misery and I'm like, when this is done, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to be able to help people. This will enable me to be in spaces or places that I couldn't be without it. And for me, it's worth it. This is my incubation period. The Lord has me homebound and I'm going to make good work of it. I'm going to use my time, redeem the time. I love that. It's so inspirational. You remind me of the Proverbs. So when well, you're using what God has given you to your fullest ability. Okay. And then lastly, is there anything that um, 
you have coming up that you want to tell us about? Well, of course, we would love to have you visit our website, which is our home, our hub, which is www.thewaybacktoourselves.com with the number two for T-O. And there you can find our blog. You can find our literary journal, podcast, a store. Anything that you purchase or provide to us, 10% goes to helping fight human trafficking with Hope for Justice. So I have a monthly donation. And as that, it's a very little bit of income that I make uh, in, after I pay for things. But I have a monthly donation going. And as anybody's contributions grow, I will grow that, that monthly donation. So we really want to tithe and, and put our, in our money where mouth is and, and be who we say we're going to be. So that's something I'm proud to share. And the Poetry Hour is a great way to show up and meet community. We do that once a month, October 23rd. If this comes out before then, I highly recommend you check that out. There's a post on our blog. You can find it on our Instagram. The Instagram is really active place, which is at the way back to ourselves with the two. I have a new sub stack, which is the way back to ourselves with the two. And I call that my way back. It's a little more intimate. And so sometimes I'm posting things that might not be directly with the brand or other things because I'm really committed to our website being a community space. I'm a member on there. I am not the shining star. My story is there. But the blog, it says, One Mission, Many Voices, the Larry Journal. I really want to showcase the whole community. My sub stack, though, is, is me. You're, you're going to get me each day. And then the podcast. I'm really excited about that. We just had an interview with Nicholas Trandell. We just booked Tanner Olson of Written to Speak and a big get. I found out today, Jordan Rayner, who's a multi-published, he's really prolific writer. He has a children's book and he has a lot of great writing and he does the word before work. So he'll be coming on. We have some other exciting guests. So any of those places and spaces, I would love for you all to show up so I can meet you and say hello. Fantastic. Thank you so much. This is Thank you. Evening. I know we're probably both kind of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's been a long day. I'll sleep well tonight. <laughs> <laughs>